Hello, everyone. The podcast you're about to listen to reflects the opinions of only the people on the show, and not the official position of the Daily Beacon, its staff, or any of its editors. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the Daily Beacon's Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Nelson. I'm the opinions editor here at the Daily Beacon. Uh, joining me to talk about the news today, we have Zach Osborne. He writes Law Not Order on Thursdays for us. How are you doing, Zach? Uh, I'm doing all right. It's Friday. It's, it is Friday, thank God. I also have a Sydney Tyndall. She writes From My Perspective, bi-weekly on Fridays. How are you doing, Sydney? I'm good, thank you. Emma Hines is here. She writes Environmental with a hyphen in between because it's a pun. And that comes out on Thursdays every week. What's up, Emma? Hey. And Owen Flomberg, who writes Living the Dream every Tuesday for us. Owen, what's up, man? I'm just living the dream. Oh, my God. <laughs> All righty. Starting off yeah. solid here. No, this is good. Um, okay, so we've got, like, two things to talk about today. Um, first thing, we're going to talk about um, something that's been in the news quite a bit. We're actually going to talk about why it's been in the news so long. Um, is the shooting, school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman High School in Parkland, Florida. Um, for anybody that's unaware, uh, I think about, I guess, almost, God, two weeks ago now, um, 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Um, he was taken alive, uh, and I believe pled guilty later, um, just literally picked up in a grocery store a few miles away, uh, walked away. Um, right, and kind of almost immediately following this, the day of, there was a lot of social media um, posts from the students themselves, actually, Snapchat, Twitter, things like that, um, really horrifying stuff, kind of spread like wildfire, and so these students started getting interviews, uh, and soon enough, they started appearing on cable news shows, students like Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg, I think, are probably the two most uh, visible, um, and what I really wanted to get at is that it's, like I said, it's been two and a half weeks. Um, that's like a long time for a mass shooting, I think, to stay in the, in the news. The Vegas shooting, which was the deadliest mass shooting in American history, I think is kind of just faded from collective memory already, and that was not that long ago. Um, and yet here we are in like a news cycle that moves a mile a minute, and we've still, we're still talking about Parkland. And so I was kind of uh, curious, Zach, why you thought that we were still... Why is this still sticking around in the news? So I think probably the most salient catalyst is like you said, the student reactions. Yeah. Um, I mean, if we kind of put this in perspective as far as the emotional impact is concerned, I think the only recent uh, comparison would be Sandy Hook. Yeah. And in that instance, you have a school shooting where minors are killed, but those minors are of a much younger age where they don't have the voices to speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. And so at that point, you have to rely on the parents and everyone will say, well, they're just emotionally compromised, you know, it's tragic, but they're, they're not thinking properly. Here, we have students who are saying, you know, I understand, I am a blooming intellectual mind, and I understand the nuance of the issue that is gun control and gun violence, and I've developed an opinion, mm -hmm. and my opinion is not only backed by the research that I've done individually, but also by my experience. Mm -hmm. That's what I think is really continuing to drive this is a combination of both the emotional and the academic. Yeah. 
I would agree. This does feel different. It feels like an inflection point almost. Like you mentioned Sandy Hook, and I think that was like the last time that something like this really captured public opinion so much. Uh, Nate Silver, uh, Editor-in-Chief of 538, he's been kind of tweeting out about this, that he thinks this is different. Uh, apparently Google searches about gun control have continued to stay at a high level um, for almost two weeks now, which when you compare it to other mass shootings, when this you know it always flares up, we know the cycle, uh, kind of fades very quickly. But this is seen as sustained kind of action. Um, and like Zach said, attributing to the students, and Nate Silver kind of agrees with that as well. Um, and I was curious, we've seen with the students a lot of like accusations from certain you know groups that they are you know crisis actors or you know paid by certain people that want to see gun control uh, enacted in this country. A lot of conspiracy theories, which is very similar to Sandy Hook as well. You saw people saying that that was faked um, for whatever reason. Um, why do you think that that flares up around like? issues like this. Like, we didn't really see that in Vegas, right? But now, all of a sudden, when it, when it involves kids, is it the schools? Like, why do you think that this particularly is leading to that kind of thinking? Yeah, I think it's kind of just a last-ditch effort at this point to try and say, well, they can't be right. There's no way that these kids can have this opinion. They have to be placed here. Um, I think people don't want to admit that they're wrong about this certain issue and that the actual answer might be for gun control. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I guess because probably it's a school shooting and they think children are more impressionable um, that it didn't happen in Vegas, but mm -hmm. that's my opinion. Sydney, what do you think about that? I totally agree. I think that, um, yeah, the right just kind of can't fathom the fact that these kids genuinely believe that guns are the problem. Um, they can't wrap their minds around the fact that these ki these are you know almost 18 year old kids of voting age they know how to do their homework they know how to do their research they've grown up in this digital age where they realize that they have unlimited resources available to them at their fingertips so they are taking it upon themselves to educate themselves about this and i actually saw this video circulating on twitter this morning um cpac was last week Mm. And there's been, um, I believe... For those that don't know, uh, CPAC is the Conservative Political Action, Action Conference committee. or Committee. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a large gathering of uh, conservatives it that was, happens every yeah. year, basically. It was yeah. in the news last week. Trump spoke at it. Mm -hmm. Wayne LaPierre spoke at it. Mm -hmm. Dana Lash spoke at it. Lots of people did. Um, and the video from, I believe, Now This made the video, and it was just kind of a compilation of people disagreeing with the students and saying, you know, it's, it's driven by emotion. You're too young to be able to have an opinion on gun legislation, and that's just not true. And I, I honestly feel like if you have never been in a situation where you are literally texting your family members, I might not see you later. This might be the last time I'm speaking to you or you see your friends getting shot. If you ha yourself have not been in that situation, maybe take a step back and listen to the people who have. Yeah. And that's kind of what I wish this arm of the right that wants to perpetuate these conspiracy theory lies would, would realize. Mm -hmm. uh, Owen, I was curious uh, what you thought kind of like, do you view this as like a, re a reaction to like the, the power of these students' message, so it's almost like a, an attempt, like a conscious attempt to counter that? Or is it more just like a genuine feeling of like being so entrenched in your beliefs that it doesn't square when somebody's speaking out in this way? I think that schools 
whether you're your local high school, elementary school, even your local kindergarten, they've always been politicized. And we've seen that time and time again since you know the school system in this country kind of was established. Is there's always been a lot of debate over what goes on in schools, mm-hmm. as in and how we want our schools to look. And you saw that a lot during the civil rights movement and the integration of schools, um, because there were. You know, that institution that's a part of every community across this country, every community has, you know, a a high school to send their students, you know, elementary school, various levels of school. Um, But yeah, so when you have these shootings like the Las Vegas shooting, people don't, I think when you, you hear Las Vegas, you don't necessarily think of this is, you know, backyard America, white picket fence America, you know. The America that you're a part of it's a it's a touristy area mm-hmm. it's it, you don't look at it in the same way as you know the local high school so the school adds like an emotional yeah it has that emotional aspect because it's part of the community and I think that's why you've seen this kind of this movement also in other schools not necessarily just in Florida where this happened but like even in Oak Ridge right down the street a bunch of students if I'm not mistaken walked out of class mm-hmm. Uh, I think a couple days after the shooting yeah. or the day after the shooting, um, you know, in protest of that. One of the more fascinating things I think about that is you've seen all the universities say, like, well, if you do this, you won't be suspended. You're like, you're ap- you know, people that are yeah. applying to college, like, mm-hmm. I agree. if you're suspended, your application won't be, you know, like, negatively impacted. UT actually put out a statement about that, I believe, two days ago. Um, wow. Yeah, so it, it is interesting that it's spread so quickly nationally through schools. Because I, I do think you have a good point there. That it's like that emotionality of like this. Everybody sends their kids to a school, you know, and like this is like one of those sacred places yes. that don't we don't want violated by like violence, guns, whatever it may be. Um, I, think, I think it makes people scared too because mm-hmm. they're saying to themselves, "What like what if it happens here? Why wouldn't mm-hmm. this happen mm-hmm. here?" So it's not some crazy music festival out in Las Vegas or something like that. It's not halfway around the world. It could very easily happen mm-hmm. at your own high anywhere. school. Anywhere yeah. it could happen anywhere. Um, I wanted to mention like a, there's good and bad things that have happened as a result of all oh, the yeah. activism. Mm-hmm. Some good things that have been accomplished. Um, I think the president still wants to ban bump stocks at the national level, which yeah. was not an issue in this particular shooting. Mm-hmm. That oh, that should have been taken care of mm-hmm. after Vegas. Um, I th- believe we're going to raise the age to pur- purchase any gun to 21, or is it just rifles? I believe rifles. S- currently, currently, you need to be 21 in order to own a handgun. Okay. Um, 18 yeah. is rifle, and that's a pretty much okay. uniform so statute. So, raising the age to 21, I've heard possibly expanding background checks as being a thing, but that's kind of always a talking point thrown around. Dick's and Walmart have taken AR-15s off their shelves, yeah. um, and companies are dropping partnerships with the NRA left and right. Yeah. One thing, I'm definitely, we're gonna definitely put a pin in that, because um, coming back to congressional action, kind of like whether this sustained response is kind of what you need, but I did want to get Zach's kind of input as our, our, reg, our regular legal expert, if you will, <laughs> uh, especially when it comes to gun control and laws like that. Um, why do you think this particular issue, so I don't think I'm out of line in saying the last major piece of gun legislation that passed the United States Congress was the assault weapons ban in 94. Yeah. Um, and that lasted for 10 years till 2004 and it, was ne- it, it wasn't repealed it just expired and they did not renew it and you really haven't seen any like major federal action on this since then uh, now you've seen like Sydney said President Trump has said that maybe he's interested in raising the 
age limit, buying rifles, maybe he wants to ban bump stocks. He's, you know, admittedly all over the place on this. Is um, but what do you what do you think is like so is kept this issue so like hard to push through Congress despite it seeming to come up almost every month? That's easy. It's the Second Amendment. Yeah. I mean, just unequivocally, it is the Second Amendment. People live, vote, and die by the Second Amendment. Um, and so as we start to look at that comparative to, say, free speech or the 14th Amendment, where we also we all have equal protection under law, those are not tangible things. They are things that when the time comes, you are glad that they are there. The Second Amendment is something that I can wear on my hip every day. And one, it's a symbol of my freedom. Two, it's a symbol of security. And three, and I think this is maybe a bit less or a bit more latent than the other two, but I think it's, uh, especially from the conservative standpoint, a symbol of like individualism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're a country that we originated out of rebellion. We have essentially, we've lived the American dream of building ourselves from the mm -hmm. ground up, um, in theory, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and so it, it kind of, it helps to additionally reinforce the idea that I as an individual am powerful because I am endowed the right to have power. Yeah. And so I think that the majority of the pushback towards legislation is definitely, it's held in the hands of the citizenry. And of course the NRA plays a significant role in that and the congressional gridlock throughout the Obama administration um, the inability to push things through in the beginning of the Trump administration uh, definitely contributes to that. But I think the vast majority of pushback against that type of legislation are the people who support the Second Amendment so fervently. Yeah. One thing that, that Sydney brought up as well that I think is interesting is you've seen um, companies become, in a way, almost more responsive than legislators on this issue. Um, she mentioned Walmart and Dick's have said that they're not selling guns in their stores anymore. I don't I, is it just AR-15s or sure, is it all yeah. guns? I wasn't sure. Or maybe it's like they're raising yeah, the age. I'm pretty sure you're right. I yeah. think it's yeah. just AR-15s. Okay. Yeah. So they're not selling that gun, which, you know, is, is a step. Um, you've seen Kroger of all places, which apparently does sell guns yeah. out west, <laughs> uh, say that they are not selling guns in their stores anymore. A lot of companies are dropping discounts for NRA members, which, mm -hmm. frankly, I did not know were a thing, but um, you've seen. Yeah, a little bit discounts of, anymore. Yeah, exactly, because they're all they're all dropping. And I think yeah. it's Zach. What do you think allows companies to be more responsive to this than like the people that we argue that arguably represent us? Right, like companies don't necessarily represent mm -hmm. us. We vote with our wallets in terms of like whether to support them, but like we literally vote for politicians. And so when companies are feeling the heat on this more than politicians are, what does that say about our political system? I mean, obviously that is, uh, that's a direct threat to democracy in my eyes. I, I think that um, the way that we vote currently has been, it, it's been almost, uh, it's been manipulated, we'll say <laughs> that because I don't want to swear. Um, <laughs> it's been manipulated to the point where we only really have two meaningful ways of contribution to the system. The first is by demonizing and deconstructing our representatives, whether that's through scandal or just through mass opposition, and it doesn't happen that often. The second 
is through economic contributions. So that can be campaign contributions, that can be um, like using your time and resources to support a candidate. With companies, they only have one of those avenues. We don't vote for Walmart, except through a wallet. So it's easy. So it's, it's much easier for the average person to say, I'm not gonna buy anything from Walmart. And a lot of these areas where Walmart, I mean, we have them in Tennessee, there's one Walmart to a town. Mm -hmm. And if that is a significant source of, you know, economic dispersion, dissemination of these resources, then for people to say, you know, I see this significant event as being something that has caused me to mobilize, Mm -hmm. that suddenly threatens not only my sales of that particular item, but of my my consumership. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Owen, do you have something here? Yeah, so I don't think that these companies have that much of a pressure on them, to be honest. Really? Is I don't think whether or not that the Walmart sells this kind of gun or that kind of gun is going to really affect them at all. And I don't think anyone's not going to shop at Walmart because they're selling guns. I mean, there might be you know this rando person here and there, but at large, that's not really affecting their sales. So I think... This, I think this is very similar to the whole Confederate flag crisis that happened, I guess that was like two years, three years ago. It's an ongoing issue. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. But, but we've had all these companies like Walmart that wouldn't uh, sell, you know, the, uh, what was that Southern TV show with the guys? Dukes of Hazzard. Yeah, Dukes of Hazzard. Mm-hmm. You know, they wouldn't sell the Dukes of Hazzard car mm-hmm. in the Walmart anymore because they had, you know, the, Confederate, the flag. Confederate flag on the top. No one was not shopping at Walmart because they were selling a Dukes of Hazard Confederate flag car. The reason why they do this is not because there's any sort of economic pressure. It's more of a what kind of brownie points can I get from the people that actually care. And the people that actually care are not necessarily the people that are always you know, shopping in these places. It's the people that are most vocal. You know, that they're out on social media saying, uh, you know, Walmart supports guns and or supports the Confederacy rising again. You know, people going out on social media, putting these tirades out for everyone to see, that's what they're combating. So it's more like a PR step than like an actual response. Yeah, I don't think it's... It's almost preemptive. Yeah, it's preemptive, and it makes them look good because then they get a national news headline that beeps on everyone's phone that says... Uh, you know, that's Walmart. true. I got two of them. Yeah, exactly. I got yeah. multiple of them too. Is mm-hmm. these companies? I, there, was it there. Dick's Sporting? Dick's, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dick's was the other one too. Where it's like, I didn't even know they sold guns. Mm-hmm. You know, but I never even thought about it, and I was never going to not shop at Dick's because they were selling guns. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how most Americans feel. It's just this whole like, who can be on the right side yeah. of it. Yeah, and I I agree with your point. I think that companies took this angle more because they were like, okay, people are calling to action and our government isn't doing anything about it, Congress isn't doing anything about it, but there is something that we can do about it. So it kind of shows how much power the private sector can have. Um, But yeah, I I agree. I don't know if if Dick's not selling AR-15s anymore is really going to deter that many customers or not. I guess what I find find interesting is, is the... In, like immediate response that these companies can have that that Congress doesn't, that individual legislators even really don't, right? And it's it is interesting, and I wonder if that does play with what Zach said of, you know, they have exactly one way of knowing how you feel about them really, which is like, do are they doing well financially? Because that's what companies care about, and so they're making risks every day, or you know, making decisions every day to decide 
is this going to be better in the long run financially to do X versus Y? Whereas with congressmen, legislatures, they're thinking in a million different ways in terms of like, well, am I going to lose money here? But if I'm not, am I going to make up the money somewhere else? Or am I going to lose uh, base mobilization here? Or are more people going to be angry at me if I don't do this? And so it almost paralyzes people. Like, And this leads into kind of what I think is going to be maybe the last point on this section at least, which is uh, how many of you are familiar with the Overton window, that concept? So what, what the Overton window is, is it's, it's like political science type theory, which is like the general what is acceptable to talk about in public discourse. So you've seen, like, for the best example I can give you, at least for like our lifetime, is racism. Racism is not really in the Overton window. Explicit racism isn't. You can't have like a political candidate go out there and just drop racial slurs all the time, like consistently, like really offensive stuff, and see them like do well or have their positions taken seriously. You obviously see examples of like implicit racism, which uh, I feel like comfortable saying that like the Trump campaign engaged in sometimes, like you know, with implicitly racist appeals. But you don't have him going out there and dropping slurs constantly, and so like that is outside of the Overton window, for example. Um, but the, the window shifts depending on certain things, right? Like, you might even see more explicit racism now because of what happened in 2016. It's almost more acceptable to voice these opinions, which is you see, like, the rise of, like, the alt-right groups, and you know, we just had Matthew Heimbach come speak on campus, who voices things that we would generally say are outside of acceptable discourse, but definitely are getting a little bit more play. Um, and so what's interesting about guns with this concept, after my long-winded explanation, is we haven't really seen the Overton window on guns change in a long time. So, like, you have... What's the most extreme, like, position you can think of on the left of guns? The most extreme? Yeah, the most extreme. Would just be looking at the Second Amendment or repealing yeah, Like, like yeah. repealing yeah. the Second Amendment, right? I have Taking away everyone's guns that they have right the, Which now. has not been a suggestion them. once. Exactly. Nobody... Once. Not once. Yeah. <laughs> like, nobody in elected politics, or really even on the left, like, the there's some people, obviously, on the extreme, like, extreme left in the country who say, ban all guns, repeal the Second Amendment, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not, like, a mainstream idea at all. Um, but the right side of this window is very mainstream. You have now an actual proposal to arm teachers, to put guns, more guns in the hands of more citizens, uh, which is, I would say, the, about the most extreme, like, rightward position you could have on this issue. Um, why do you, so I, I'll turn it to Zach first, at least, and I kind of want to get everybody's thoughts, but, like, why is that window so heavily tilted right on this issue, and do you think that it could change because of what's happened with these students in Parkland? So I, I actually think that the window has already shifted as yeah. a result of kind of not only the public outcry, mm -hmm. but the optics of the situation of people being open to having what has been traditionally a difficult conversation. Um, am I going to violate my own freedoms in order to ensure security for the general common good? Um, and that's something that we don't enjoy discussing. Mm -hmm. I mean, to use the analogy of racism and to go back even further into, let's say, slavery. Mm -hmm. um, in discussing slavery, why shouldn't we have slavery? If I'm a slave owner, then me getting rid of my slaves is going to be detrimental to me, but it is obviously better for the common good. Mm -hmm. I don't say that to equate the two in magnitude, yeah. but I say that to say 
that I think that we have trouble speaking about these issues as they start to shift, even though the window has shifted. So just like talking about it is a shift. Almost. Yes. Yeah. Um, but the second part of that question, um, I think that as we start to see this develop more and more, um, for instance, there was an incident the other day in Georgia where a high school teacher locked himself in a room and uh, discharged a firearm through the door. Mm -hmm. um, we start to see these incidents not necessarily within the, the isolation chamber that we've kind of put them in historically, mm -hmm. but we start to see them in kind of this larger tapestry of the issue of gun violence and the ongoing debate as a whole, and we say, okay, we have all these instances where this has happened, and we're going to start making conclusions as a result. And I think that the shift comes from us as a community and as a society starting to make conclusions, mm -hmm. um, especially with, uh, I mean, mass shootings have risen in the past 25 or so years, whereas individual gun crime has... Down. Crime in general has de-escalated significantly. And so now I think the more that we see that increase, the more we're going to have to have that conversation, and the more that we have to accrue that data, or that we are accruing that data, even if it is antecedental. Mm -hmm. um, that's what she says. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Cindy, what do you think? Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying that, and what with what mm -hmm. you said, with that the ideas of the left are so outlandish and mm -hmm. impossible, they'll never happen, but that the ideas of the right are kind of taken over as far as arming teachers, which um, I, it was one of my points about this uh, activism has caused good things to happen, but it's also caused some bad things to happen too. And I think this, um, this bill, and I don't know if this bill has to go through anything else before it actually becomes law yet, mm -hmm. um, but I think that this is one of the really terrible ideas. This is a $67 million program to train teachers to carry guns. And I think it's really, I don't like how we're putting so much unfair pressure on teachers. They're already underpaid, they're already undervalued, and basically what we're saying there is we're only going to raise your pay if you learn how to use a weapon, mm -hmm. which I think is completely ridiculous. But I also wonder, because in that town hall, Marco Rubio said he was not for the idea of teachers being armed, mm -hmm. and Governor Rick Scott of Florida said he was not for the idea of teachers being armed either. And I haven't heard Trump's response to this, even though he gave a similar kind of idea after he met with some of the kids yeah. from Parkland. So I don't really know what's going to become of this, um, but I hope that it doesn't actually <laughs> happen, because I feel like, just like what happened in Georgia, it's going to continue to happen again, and it's going to be us asking, do, is this really what we want? I don't, you know, I believe in saying you don't fight fire with fire, you don't fight a firearm problem with more firearms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no? Emma, I, like, what do you think it would take to, to shift the window left? Like, because I, I don't feel, and this is just my personal opinion as moderator here, but like, I don't feel that we've shifted the window left after Parkland. Like, I think that we're, we're discussing ideas that have been in the mainstream for a pretty long time. Assault weapons ban, we've done it before. Uh, banning bump stocks were discussed after Vegas, uh, things like that. So what do you think it would take to like totally shift our like frame of discussion here to shift that window to being more restrictive in terms of gun control? I think that's a really good question. Um, 
I think there's been somewhat of an effort already, even from the right, to try and like give some voice to the left already because they do keep saying the left wants to take away our guns. They want to take away all of our guns, and so they're like quote unquote giving voice to what the left wants. But like you were saying, it's so far left. No one actually wants to yeah. take away all of our guns. We know it's not going to happen. We know there's going to be too much of an outcry against it, and so. I think it would be more realistic situations that could happen, like more background checks, and I think that just needs to be more mainstream media, and it doesn't need to be like as politicized as it is. Because while yes, this is a bipartisan issue, like it's everyone. Everyone is affected by guns. It's not just Democrats. It's not just uh, Republicans. It's not just kids. This is something that we all are affected by, and I think we all need to see that. So I think it needs to. We need to stay away from the whole. Liberals want to take away all of our guns. Mm -hmm. So you don't think it would actually. You don't actually think it would be for the left, you don't think it would be helpful to shift that window? Not especially. I think okay. we need to appeal to the moderates here. Interesting. Oh, and as someone that I believe has described himself as moderate, do you think that the the right, the rightward anchor of this issue is good, is bad, or like should it shift somewhere, or like is the frame of discussion we're having okay? Can we solve this problem within that frame? No. Okay. And here's why. We have the Second Amendment, mm -hmm. and you will not be able to do... We're going to be having this discussion for 800 years, and I don't know how many schools are going to have to be shot up you know, before this discussion changes, because the discussion is not whether we should have guns or whether we shouldn't have guns, da 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 because we can talk about that all day. It's that a Second Amendment is in our Constitution. If we want to get rid of that, or alter that, or change that, that's a discussion we can have, but at the end of the day, we have the legal right to a firearm. And that's not gonna really change until something changes with that part of our constitution. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't changed and I don't think it will change until the left starts, and even moderates and people on the right, as I consider myself, I, I think we should change a little bit of like how we treat guns in mm -hmm. this country. I don't know if it's necessarily like a human right to have a firearm. Mm -hmm. I, I, that's how I, I view it. But the left does it, people on the right or moderate people like kind of agree with me, talk too much about whether we should have guns or what kind of guns we should have or what accessories we can have. It just doesn't matter. It's that law exists. That's part of our constitution. We should more frame it like how should we how do we want to alter that? So you think the window is almost the overton window here is almost too focused on ideals and not like practical yeah because it's just not practical Interesting. but at the same time i don't think a solution is maybe changing the second amendment or adding to it i think i mean we've had an assault weapons ban before if that's the answer we had it from 94 to 2004 although um as far as i know there were a lot of loopholes in which people could yeah. still exactly. get speak to a lot of um, yeah. assault weapons however and there's a lot of different studies out right now that you can look at, and they're not, it, the data, it, it kind of, it depends on which way you look at it, but as far as mass shootings go, mm -hmm. they certainly decreased in those 10 years that we didn't have them, and I, I mean, I was 10 in 2004 when it ended, <laughs> but I don't remember people crying about how their Second Amendment rights were taken away from them because mm -hmm. of that, you know? You have a Second Amendment right, mm -hmm. you can't own a tank, yeah. you can't own an M16, if an AR-15 was added to this list and you could still buy a shotgun, a pistol, whatever you want, I don't 
understand how your Second Amendment right is really infringed upon. Funny enough, I do think you can't own a tank. <laughs> <laughs> you can't own a tank. You can't own the um, ammo. In my you can't drive address. them either. <laughs> yeah. Emma, did you? Emma had something. Yeah, I just think well. I've heard a really interesting conversation, kind of just about this whole issue about the Second Amendment and stuff. But um, one voice that I have heard is that like the founding fathers had no idea that AR-15s were going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like. The guns that they had at the time, exactly, and it took two minutes to reload it, so the damage that you could do was so little compared to these guns that are killing hundreds of people in ten minutes. And so I think there's a lot of people who are saying, like, well, we should interpret the Constitution so that um, the guns that you're allowed to have are the ones that they had, like, when the Constitution was written, but people don't agree with that, and so they think that Well, it also gets into... Is the Constitution a like a living document that we take literally, or is does it change? <laughs> we over should definitely time? definitely put a cap on that. <laughs> yeah, which is a different yeah. conversation. But I know Zach is super passionate yeah. about that, so I'll let him go if he wants to. <laughs> yeah. But so I'm going to reference a case that Jared and I have talked about on numerous yes. occasions. <laughs> DCV Heller. Um, so in DCV Heller, I think that uh, Justice Stevens' dissenting opinion is particularly. Uh, I want to say wise, because it really is. For those who don't know, DCV Heller involves a handgun ban that Washington, D.C. passed back in the late 90s, I believe. Um, yes. And the decision was written in 2001. And essentially what the Supreme Court said is that blanket handgun bans are unconstitutional. They infringe upon your Second Amendment rights to bear arms. And Justice, uh, late Justice Scalia wrote the majority opinion on that. Um, Stevens' de- dissent... Uh, obviously takes a different approach, but I'll let you just get back Yeah, so um, Stevens basically, uh, and he's joined by Souter, Ginsburg, and one other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a 5-4 decision. Um, he essentially states that while the amendment protects the right to keep and bear arms, it does not curtail the legislator's power to regulate non-military use and ownership. And I think that's very, very... Um, important when we're starting to discuss, you know, do we start to infringe essentially on people's rights? What exactly are we infringing on the Second Amendment? Are we infringing on their ability to keep a well-regulated militia? Are we infringing on their ability to bear arms? What arms are we going to withhold from our citizenry? And so I, I think as we continue to go forward with this discussion and the national discussion as a whole, we need to keep that in mind. We need to keep in mind that as ambiguous as that amendment is, people recognize that there is room for discussion. There's room for, I'm not going to say improvement because I think that that's maybe a little too subjective, um, but definitely room for it to grow as, uh, as Sydney said, a living constitution, if you will. And I think that that's very important as this is continually discussed. I, I think that's interesting, too. Um, but I think that's a good note to end at least that discussion on, uh, keeping where the window is, at least, is within the bounds, as I said, of the Second Amendment. But that, that is not perhaps as absolute as some say. Um, but we're going to move on to our second topic here, and what I guess is our last topic as well, unless we talk about a funny tweet at the end, like I have considered, um, which is the case of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision to draw a congressional district map, which is very interesting to me. Uh, I'm really passionate about redistricting and really interested. 
uh, in this type of thing. So in case you don't know, which many people might not, um, back in January, um, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court heard a case essentially where the plaintiffs argued that the current congressional map of Pennsylvania is unconstitutionally partisan. So what that means is that it's essentially tilted in favor of one party too much um, without regards to the way that people live, like geographically, um, the arrangement of counties or cities. It's, it's a map that's purely designed to lump Republicans, in this case Republicans, into districts where they can win the most congressional seats. Um, historically, under the current map, Republicans have won about 13 of 18 seats in Pennsylvania, um, which is more than half, obviously, despite the fact that in the most recent presidential election, President Trump won Pennsylvania by, I believe, less than a percentage point. So you see, you see a difference there of like raw vote total versus actual representation is heavily skewed towards Republicans in this case. So the court ordered them to draw a new map, the current Republican-held legislature. So they drew a new map. The court looked at it and they said, you didn't do a good enough job, so we're just going to do it ourselves. So they drew an entirely new map for Pennsylvania. Um, and this is the map that will be used, I believe, in 2018. Um, there's currently a special election going on there, actually, right now in the 18th district, um, which is using the old map. But that whole map is going to get wiped off the map, wiped off the map, literally, uh, for 2018. Um, the legislature there has reacted very, very negatively. They have threatened to impeach Supreme Court justices over this decision, uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court justices. Mm. Um, they've said that the court stepped outside of its bounds constitutionally to draw a map, um, that that is the purview of the legislature. Um, uh, so it, it's become quite the issue, and it speaks to the larger issue of gerrymandering in this country. Um, one thing I would like to say is if you want a good illustration of what gerrymandering is, uh, Google the gerrymandering game or the gerrymandering project, which is an actual like browser game that lets you gerrymander certain districts and kind of see how the process works. It's very, very, very interesting. Um, so what I really wanted to talk about here was like the, the larger issue of gerrymandering, which is when politicians are essentially picking their own voters. Those that are in power redraw the maps, lump people into their districts, and secure safe or not safe districts for their party or another. Um, Zach, what do you think, mainly like from a legal perspective at least, what do you think the court's role is in gerrymandering? I know there's actually a Supreme Court case being heard right now about it. So Gilvey Whitford is the current Supreme Court case that's in oral arguments been heard, but there has been no verdict set down thus far. Um, it originated out of the state of Wisconsin and essentially uh, the standing for the dispute is that redistricting violates um, the 14th Amendment, mm -hmm. um, that we should have equal protection under law, mm -hmm. and by being disenfranchised through the practice of gerrymandering, that uh, in this case, Democratic voters are not equally protected to have their right to vote. Um, in the past, we've seen other Supreme Court cases uh, speak to this issue on race. Mm -hmm. um, however, it started to, as we see a lot of minorities cluster in urban areas mm -hmm. that typically vote Democratic, um, we're starting to see the two kind of become one. And so as that continues to develop, I think we're gonna see more and more as far as like the idea that my rights as individual are being violated 
um, kind of come to fruition in that discussion. The current law, by the way, that, that kind of governs this, um, I don't remember the exact case, but the Supreme Court heard a case on this back, I believe, in the late 90s or early 2000s, um, and essentially ruled against the idea that the courts should be the ones to draw the map. So they, at the time, said that, at least Kennedy, Justice Anthony Kennedy said, um, that there wasn't a set way or method of determining when something is, when a map is too partisan, when it groups too many Republicans together, groups too many Democrats together, you know, entrenches one party in power, that there's no, like, objective method of describing that. And so he deferred, and he said, essentially, in that case, was bring me a method by which we can determine that that is the case, and then we can move from there. Um, what's interesting about Gilby Whitford, which is the case Zach just talked about, is that they, the plaintiffs in that case have brought a method. Um, it's called an efficiency gap. And so what you essentially do is you run a bunch of simulations with like the people, like historical vote share and stuff like that, um, and you find how many like votes are being wasted. So like when a Republican, let's just say a Republican wins 50, 51-49%, right? Every vote above 50% is like, technically wasted. Like, not, not like in practicality, but it's technically wasted. Um, and what essentially they're arguing in Gilby Whitford is there's a way of measuring this by like a percentage um, of how, what the percentage of that district's votes are wasted every time. And in this case, they're arguing that if you have an efficiency gap of 8%, so like 8% of that district's votes are essentially wasted every time to, to make it non-competitive. Uh, that that is enough to deprive you of your constitutionally protected right to one vote, you know, equal protection under the law. Um, which I think is an interesting thing. The Supreme Court is generally very hesitant to embrace science, data, things like that. Um, much more deferential to precedent and all of that. Um, but, Sydney, I was curious what you thought about mainly like how gerrymandering works in the, in the country and... Um, Especially if you can speak to how you think the court would rule on something like this. So I'm not, I'll be the first to admit that I'm not as educated on this issue as you are. I'm very interested in it. Um, but from what I'm researching, it looks like, of co well, okay, according to this 538 article I found, yes. it's, this should not be confused with a Democratic gerrymander. It's mm -hmm. just because the old map favored Republicans much more doesn't mean that now that it's redrawn, it's going to automatically favor Democrats. Yes, and one it reason... It just means that yeah. it's more fair toward their electorate. Yeah, so just to like give context, the map that the court came up with in Pennsylvania, historically, the original map, Republicans tended to win about 13 of 18 districts. The new map, experts project, mm -hmm. would lead to Democrats winning about... Three uh, or four seats. Yeah, three or four extra seats, yeah. which brings it to them essentially winning about eight or nine total seats, uh, which is still less than 50% of Pennsylvania's congressional district. So it's not like the court was overwhelmingly in favor of like essentially just swinging the pendulum the other way. Right. It's a very, I would say, balanced map mm -hmm. in terms of yeah. like actual representation. Yeah, absolutely. From what I'm reading, this is a much more fair map, and I hope the Democrats have some solid candidates this November that they can pull a win in and maybe swing the state the other way. I don't know. Um, I do know that Trump has um, tweeted about this and said... Really? I have not seen that. Um, he said, you're... Uh, sorry. House Republicans in the great state of Pennsylvania challenged the new pushed 
congressional map all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary. Your original was correct. Okay. Is what he said. Don't let the Dems take elections away from you so that they can raise taxes and waste money. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually not aware of that. Yes, he responded to it. Um, It kind of shows how little he cares about fairness within the electoral system, but we all know. (laughs) I mean, we we all kind of know this. Um, But yeah, that was his response. So, I don't know. I feel like that just kind of adds fuel to the fire of wanting... The Democrats to win even more. Oh, and get rid of districts. Get rid of districts. Yeah. You think that's the solution to Jerry? Yeah, single member districts. You're never going to get it perfectly. So, I mean, obviously that's easier said than done. It's just getting <laughs> just rid of, of <laughs> districts within states. But, I mean, if you want proportional representation, I don't know. Is that part of the federal constitution that you have to have yes. districts within states, so or is that state? I believe it is. It is a federal. The way that our electoral system is set up, and the way that people are elected, essentially, goes down to House of Representatives based on certain geographic areas, which translates into districts. Um, what Owen is talking about, proportional representation, is very similar to what happens in parliamentary systems in European countries, where essentially you have you have a, a much larger geographic area. So like, let's say instead of doing a, a district, you just have a state, right? So let's take Tennessee, for example. We've got nine congressional seats. We've got nine House members. Uh, so you would have the entire state vote for probably like a party. Or maybe or you, you can have, have a vote for candidates. Yeah, too. or you have a vote for candidates. Yeah. Um, and essentially the percentage of the vote would allocate what percentage of the seats you got. So we have nine which is not a nice round number. So let's say we had 10 for Mastic. If you got 50% of the vote in Tennessee, one party, one candidate, you would get 50% of those seats rather than it just being a bunch of little 51% contests. And then you don't have to play around with these maps anymore. And you don't have to have formulas to figure out how fair it is and then people contesting the fairness of that formula that's supposed to be figuring out how fair things are and, you know, people stressing about these, you know, the details of the map, you just have a much larger district, a state, with a a certain size delegation based on its population, and proportionally that population is uh, represented proportionally by what their ideology is. And will that ever happen? Probably not, because (laughs) that's very hard to do, but I don't know. I mean, we're going to be having this conversation forever until something changes. Because we have seen like the courts step into this a little bit more. Emma, where do you think the, the responsibility of this kind of lies within government? Because you have the Pennsylvania Republicans saying, oh, it's the legislature's job to draw these maps. And the court says, well, we can do it if you guys don't do it well enough. So where do you think that, like, that, that responsibility best lies? Right. I don't know. I, in theory, I think it would lie with the legislature because it's a law. I mean, it's their job. But I think one thing that I've thought a lot about is just the bipartisan nature of it. Like, there's, it kind of depends on who is controlling the state legislature at the time. So if Republicans are holding whichever state, they're probably going to draw a map that is more like apt for their for them to win. Mm-hmm. Whereas if the Democrats do it, they'll do the reverse. And so it's just going to keep going back and forth and back and forth. And you have seen us talk over you, but just to, we're talking about Republicans here because that's who controls Pennsylvania. But you can see examples of this in Democratic states as well. Maryland, for example, returns, I believe, in an all-Democratic congressional delegation, despite 
not being 100%, being like more close to 50% split down the middle. So that, you're totally right. It is. Yeah. But I think um, in, in an effort to like try and be more neutral, I think it's a better idea for the courts to do it. Um, I'm not sure whether or not it's in their like legal rights, but um, even though a court can have more of a liberal or a Republican kind of sway to it, I think their position is supposed to be more of like the long-standing constant voice. And so if a court is drawing it, it would be more fair because it's more objective. It's not someone, because at, at one point, like it will be the legislators drawing up their own voters because whether or not their district stays the same or it changes, it's gonna, or it's gonna change whether or not they get reelected. Mm -hmm. So there's automatic bias within that. Yeah. Zach, I'm curious about your opinion on that as well. So currently, I think that there are 11 independent commissions that draw district maps. Yeah, so not states. all states, not all yeah. states use their legislatures. Some use other, other groups yeah. essentially. And as Owen stated, and I think he makes the point quite well, this is just going to be an issue mm -hmm. um, because if we have the ability to pick who votes for us, and we can put someone else at a disadvantage mathematically, and then if you go and you uh, do like the redistricting simulations. It can be especially specific how they draw these districts. <laughs> Some of them are quite funny. Would recommend you look up uh, North Carolina's congressional district map. Yeah. There's a, one on there called the Snake, I believe. It yeah. essentially goes down one highway for. Yeah, it's Highway 77 yeah. right through Charlotte. Um, it's completely right along the highway, so it's so disproportionate. Yeah. It's just one highway that links two large areas of Democratic vote share together to loop them to lump them into one district so that they aren't represented by two, which would, of course, give them more of a say in Congress. It's very interesting. It's absurd. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm more interested to see uh, how this plays out, especially at the Supreme Court level, because that's going to dictate a lot of what we see. Um, and this speaks to, uh, I would like to give Sydney here, the way that, you know, you see now Pennsylvania, the legislature there, literally threatening to impeach justices over this decision. Um, do you think that, because I think we've gotten a, quite a few different opinions on where this responsibility should lie, do you think that if it lies with the court, that that in turn makes them more political inherently and that's vulnerable to criticism? Or should it just be there anyway because that's the best place for it? It could make it more political for the courts to decide, um, but you have to think that in this in this scenario, or not a scenario, this situation, they had the opportunity to redraw the districts, and they true. messed it up and did the same thing and made it even more unfair. So the courts were like, okay, we can't trust you to draw your own districts, so we have to do it for you. It's almost like, you know, coddling a child mm -hmm. at this point. Um, I mean, it, it could look that way, but I think the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania is just facing the situation of, if we don't step in, it's not going to be fair. Mm -hmm. So, I really don't know, honestly. So, if I may, yeah. um, I think that leaving it in the hands of the court is assuming that courts are not political entities, and they absolutely are. The fact that we can elect and vet justices is inherent to the idea that courts are political entities. They are. Um, the currently one of the uh, objectives of the Republican-led government is to seat Republican or conservative-aligning justices. 
It yeah. makes complete sense. Why okay. would you not do that? So I think if we're going to leave that uh, that ability to draw these districts with the court, we also have a, a burden, or I should say the legislature has a burden to also ensure that the courts are not stacked as well. And I think that then generates another problem altogether um, because the courts don't just exist to redraw the map at that point. And so I, I'm personally a big advocate of the independent commission. I think that one, it, it's fair. And that's really what everybody wants at the end of the day is, oh, well, aside from winning, but you can't cheat and win, <laughs> have it that way. So and then the next best thing is fairness. And I think if we can ensure the most fairness for everyone, then I think that's going to be the most amicable across the board. Yeah, maybe this does speak to the fact that, um, like Emma said, I do agree that the court is generally like a more objective, seen as a more objective responsibility to the law. Um, but it's almost like we're trying to remove politics from as inherently a political problem, you know? Yeah. And, and like, they're, they're usually appointed based on their political yeah. ideology, too. Um, so and, and that doesn't, you know, sense. speak one way about these justices or the other. I don't know the leanings of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. You know, I would assume they've been in, their state legislature has been in work. Gerrymandering. I think we learned today we should have a constitutional convention. Oh. <laughs> what's your what's your first amendment up? Oh. There's just two. The many. one I don't I think it might be like the it's not the fifth. I don't remember which one it is. The the one where soldiers can fourth. come into your house and stay. No, third. Third? Yeah, third. that one. No quarters. No quarters. That one's actually never come up to the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's never been challenged because uh why would that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, America. That's actually you did one thing right. Point to speak to kind of the antiquated design of that amendment. Um, we joke about it, but realistically, that that's never happened in the history of modern day America. Is it any further of a stretch to say, hey, maybe some of the other amendments are antiquated or need to be supported by other legislature? I think that's an interesting point. And I think it's something that as we continue to go forward, not with any specific discussion, but with just our legal system in general, we do need to observe the fact that we have moved so far from the environment of the Founding Fathers and the founding of the Constitution of America that we need to ask ourselves do we establish our legislature within the spirit of the law, or do we establish it within the letter of the law? That's interesting. And I think that's a, a great point to end on. So thank you all uh, for being here. Uh, Owen, any, any parting words? Uh, no, yeah. This was a lot of fun. Cool. Emma, anything? No, I think this was great. Go balls. Yeah. Yeah. Go balls. <laughs> no, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I'll do it back. Uh, I can't swear at Nazis, can I? Not on here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, no I basically already to. did. Yeah, I want to. You have so. a column, so you can... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I might. We'll see. All right, well, thank you all for listening uh, to our first little pilot episode here. Uh, we'll be back either next week. Well, no, not next week, because it's going to be spring break. So in probably two to three weeks, we will be back with a regularly scheduled program. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all very much for listening. Have a great week.